Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. Welcome to episode 000055 of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I want to start off by acknowledging the land from which I am broadcasting on, and that is of the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Now, I am broadcasting to you once again <clears throat> from Radio City Docklands, broadcasting in isolation, one less person on the road one less person potentially infecting other people or becoming infected with the virus. This thing is not over by a long march, even though that uh, restrictions have been somewhat eased. Um, we've got to continue to do the right thing and uh, show common sense. There is um, so many angles to this thing and the impact it is having on people across society, but particularly on the most vulnerable, is uh, something to behold. Later in the show, I'll have a conversation with the CEO of Elizabeth Morgan House Aboriginal Women's Services Incorporated, Kellyanne Andy. We'll talk about how the lack of social housing is resulting in children being removed from mothers fleeing domestic violence. We know rates of family and domestic violence have increased since we've been in various degrees of lockdown due to COVID-19. And it's just another example and another reason amongst a plethora of reasons why well, we should all continue to do the right thing when it comes to minimising the impact of the pandemic. Because whether we like it or not, every action we take or we don't take has a knock-on effect for people that we're unlikely to ever meet. And that's, of course, no reason to take our foot off the pedal. What we do, um, you know, if we're privileged or doing well in terms of how we are socioeconomically can and will have an impact on those at the margins. And so it's important that during this pandemic, we do the right thing and make sure that we take every precaution we can to make sure that we don't impact on those who are already feeling it harder than us. Uh, but first up, I'll be having a yarn with uh, filmmaker Larissa Barrent. The ABC is screening a documentary she directed on the nuclear tests conducted by the British on the lands of the Maralinga Jarija people. That was uh, way back in the day when Australia, under the Prime Ministership of Bob Memsies, was uh, at its most sycophantic, and it would simply allow the mother country to come in and nuke us for queen and country. So we'll have a talk about that and the impacts that's had on the traditional owners Explored in the doco, which will be um, airing Sunday night. I'll give you the details once um, I've had a chat with Larissa later on. So hopefully another interesting show and another informative program coming up this evening. As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle. It's at Mr. DT James. This is the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM live from Radio City Docklands. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. So much of true history remains unknown. The history that has been taught to us is often largely superficial, 
barely scrapes the surface of what lies beyond the headlines and the catchphrases used so effectively in telling one side of the Australian story. And so has been the case with the story of Maralinga, the place 1,150 kilometres north of Adelaide, where between 1956 and 1963, the British, remarkably, initially, without the knowledge of the Australian cabinet, uh, for a period of time, conducted a, a nuclear tests on the lands of First Nations people. The documentary Maralinga Jaraja shines a spotlight on the people who have lived on the lands for over 60,000 years. And I have the film's director with us right now on the line, Larissa Barant. Welcome to Triple R. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. Uh, first of all, how are you and your friends and family dealing with uh, the current COVID crisis? Oh, well, I think like everyone, we're, um, we're using the a time to try and stay connected and look out for each other and, um, you know, trying to particularly with the young ones in the family, give them a sense of stability. And um, it's been a good time to sort of think a bit more deeply about how we care for our elders as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the, 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 the major worries for a lot of First Nations people, Larissa, has been, um, you know, worrying about the, the plight of our elders and how vulnerable they are potentially to this to this whole thing. Mm, mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, um, congratulations on the documentary. <clears throat> I watched it uh, this afternoon and Thank was quite you. moved by it. Um, as I'm sure many others will be. How, how did the project come about initially? That's a really good question because the ABC has commissioned a drama about the bombing at Maralinga called Operation Buffalo. And as part of the uh, negotiations with the community up at um, Maralinga Jarritja Lands to film for that project, the community themselves had wanted their story told. So the ABC had undertaken to do a documentary that told their story from their perspective, which, you know, obviously wouldn't be captured by a drama. And um, then I was brought in to work with them on getting the story done. So it was a, a lovely um project where the community was ready to tell the story and um, you know I had the real privilege of, of working with them to work out what was the story they wanted to tell capturing the tone of of their, the, the way they wanted to tell it and really picking out the important things for them in terms of what they wanted communicated. There were a lot of Aboriginal people affected by the Maralinga testing um, and the Maralinga Jarritja would be the first to say that theirs is just one story. Uh, so it was really about focusing on their particular story and what we brought to life in the documentary. Yeah, you do that very well. Um, uh, like you said, the, the, the documentary actually covers the and acknowledges the stories of um, a whole bunch of uh, desert First Nations people. But you know, um, the, the actual the test itself in um, you know area four ten was um, you know firmly on Maralinga Jajara. Um, land. And um, we see the story through the eyes of the traditional owners, and in particular of uh, Jeremy, the chair of the Maralinga Jarajar Trust. 
he describes how the tests were the second disaster to hit his people. Um, what, what was the first disaster? Yeah, um, in a way, I think he almost says it's the third because, um, as you say, they don't see the te- the testing is really what non-indigenous people focus on. Mm. But for the the people who lived there they see the first disaster as the coming of the railway, which, you know, obviously was the first wave of colonisation. And, you know, with with them brought um, the, you know, white men, brought alcohol, brought abuse of Aboriginal women. That led, of course, to the removal of half-caste children. And all of those those things that came with that first wave of colonisation um, the the focus for the community um, uh, with that story is a place called Aldea, which is on the edge of the Nullarbor and was a really significant place for for the people because it was a water source that never failed. So for the over 60,000 years that Aboriginal people had lived on that country, however severe the drought was, they could come to Aldea and... Um, that water source would be secure. So it was a place of enormous social, economic and cultural and spiritual significance for the people. And I think it's a real, um, you know, it's a real modern parable that this water source um, supported the land, uh, that the people living on the land for over 60,000 years. And when when the railway came, uh, and the water source was used to um, used for the steam trains. That water source failed in 20 years. So it took 20 years for non-indigenous people to ruin that water source and effectively upend that life. So, so the community also speaks of the closing of Aldea as a as a disaster that befell them. Uh, but as you point out, that's very much related to that initial colonisation. So, unfortunately, this perfect storm occurs where that water source gets ruined and they can no longer stay there at Aldea. But because the testing's about to happen, people were moved down to Yalata, to the south of, of their traditional land, rather than being able to move back onto their own country. Yeah, and it was, um, you know, Aldea was a place where all the desert people could actually go and meet. And so it was, a, it was not only a, a water source, but it was also an area where people um, from, from different tribes and um, in some cases different nations could actually get together and, um, you know, that would lead to an understanding and, and, and peace for, for, for millennia, I would imagine. Yes, yes, absolutely. It was it was a hugely important cultural site and people would come from all over the 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 Nullarbor and beyond to to be there. Uh, it's why there was a mission built there uh, because it was such a central place, and people loved being there. Um, it was fascinating to go in when we were filming. Uh, we went back to where the old mission site was, and you can see in the archive there were buildings. Uh, the land looked fairly flat, um, but actually the desert has really taken that land back and it's it's all sand hills now. It's you need really, it somebody was... like like Jeremy 
Yes, it was it was really interesting to see um, some of the archival footage and seeing some um, young children play on the swings there, and then that being juxtaposed against the top of the swings now, pretty much being taken over by by the desert and by the sand hills. That's so true, and it actually took me a moment to realise that that's what we were looking at when we were filming. When I went back into the archive, because so much had been had been um, taken over by by the desert, like it's come back to reclaim this place. But amazingly, um, Jeremy told me on our last trip there that that water source they think is coming back. That uh, there is some sign uh, that that the um, that that there may be a possibility. Uh, to bring some of that water source back. So it's another testament to how resilient country can be when mm. it's left alone. Yeah, um, uh, yeah and, the, and the people along with it. Now, the tests themselves largely faded into um, into history until the um, South Australian government began a Royal Commission into the testing and the health impacts it had on Aboriginal people, uh, and this was way back in 1984, I believe. What did the what did the commission find? So importantly, um, what the Royal Commission found was that the the British had kept a lot of information from the Australian government. The Australian government, particularly Prime Minister Menzies, had been very quick to agree to the British using uh, that part of Australia uh, for their testing. Uh, but as, as that, um, those activities uh, went on, uh, the British did not disclose what they were doing uh, to the Australian government. So uh, while it was known there was nuclear testing going on there, for example, um, what wasn't uh, revealed until the Royal Commission was the fact that plutonium had been used in testing. And, of course, that's a highly toxic substance. Mm. Um, and so although some effort had been made to, to clean up where the nuclear testing had taken place, um, there had been no attempt to clean up the plutonium because it wasn't really admitted to. So, in a way, what came out of the Royal Commission was an acknowledgement of what um, Aboriginal people had been exposed to, what the servicemen who had been involved with the tests had been exposed to and weren't weren't told. I mean, a lot of them also claimed that they suffered ill effects, um, not surprisingly, but, you know, that, that was uh, played down and denied. They fought very hard for their own um, compensation. They were quite vocal... Um, when they could be about the fact that Aboriginal people hadn't been treated well and the lands weren't properly um, cleared, that, that there'd been not enough effort made and that people high up seemed quite indifferent to Aboriginal people who were able to find some archive of servicemen who, who said those things. There was an Official Secrets Act in place, so people who did have information were threatened if they mentioned things. So there was this whole range of things that the Royal Commission was able to bring out and fundamentally in that was that the British government had not been honest or upfront with the Australian government about all the activities that had taken place um, during the period that they were at Maralinga. It, um, it, 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 it 
described the the, the the cleanup by the British in 1967 as a joke in terms of, you know, the, the, it didn't get rid of the plutonium, as, as you mentioned. And it, what they actually did was just plough the surface in a lot of businesses, and that left the plutonium even more exposed. Mm. Yes, yes, it was, um, you know, it was a... A, a, a real act of um, environmental vandalism. And then, um, you know, it, it was a very long fight for the Australian government and, and really a lot of advocacy and activism by the um, Aboriginal people and, and by um, the Maralinga Jaritja, um group to, um, to get the British to then eventually uh, pay... Um, for a proper clean-up, which they split the cost with the Australian government, but for a long time claimed no responsibility around that. So it's an extraordinary uh, battle that the Maralinga Jaritja have fought 35 years to get land back, which, as they rightly say, was always theirs anyway, and then for this clean-up. Um, and in the end, they decided that the part of the land that was um, affected by the plutonium should be locked off, that they've blocked that off. But there's still large amounts of country that they are able to to live on, that they've reclaimed, um, that they that they look after, um, and they they now are the custodians of the of the Maralinga village and the Maralinga site. So. Um, you know, I was I was really touched actually the way that they would describe the fact that you know they'd say we've been here since the beginning of time, and and we will be here till the end of time. So what mm. what's happened? This this terrible thing that's happened, this disaster, is a blip, and we still have our responsibility to country. And I thought that was a really wonderful philosophy. It explains their resilience, it explains the the positive way they they look to the future. Um, And it's very deeply embedded in their very, very deep relationship with with their own land. I'm speaking with Larissa Berent, the director of a documentary that's called Maralinga Jaraja. And uh, it talks about and explains in a, in a beautiful fashion with um, animations, you know, first-person accounts, um, archival footage, the story of the uh, Maralinga nuclear tests that happened back between 1956 and 1963, conducted by the British. Um, back in 1984... Uh, Larissa, at the same time as the uh, Royal Commission, the the Maralinga Jaraja Land Rights Act came into being. What did that mean for for the local traditional owners? Oh, this was you can see from the archive what an emotional time this was. This was an opportunity for the people who had been pushed down to Yalata off their land to get their country back. And the archive is so moving. You see people just weeping happiness to be able to get back onto that country. And and Jeremy talks about his family crying because they were separated from this country. And, you know, the the, the removal from, the, from their lands was, was horrendous. It wasn't just a cruel act taking them from the country that was theirs and displacing them. But so many people, when they were moved from what they call the red earth country down to the grey earth country, 
got sick. The the amazing soil up on the Maralinga Jarretja land is this beautiful red soil. And during the day it heats up, but during the night it stays warm. So you mm. could actually sleep on the land and be warm. The 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 grey soil down at Yalata doesn't have those properties, so it's very cold. Though they actually call it old soil because they say you would go to sleep on it and you would wake up old, that it would age you, whereas the, the their own soil would keep them young. And there was a, a mass of uh, deaths from flu and from uh, pneumonia that swept through the communities as they were moved down to this colder country and onto to land that they hadn't lived on before. Um, so, you know, I think it's a really important part of the story. People look at the testing and, and there were people, we look at their stories in the film as well, who uh, were not aware the testing was on and were, were caught by the impact of the testing. But there were a lot of people who moved down and died because of the testing, even though it wasn't as a result of the radiation, but because of the change in climate and getting the pneumonia. So it, there was enormous grief on so many levels caused by this removal. So getting goes, that country back was an... Yeah, it, goes, it goes to show, like, how when, when people from First Nations say that they are, you know, connected to country and country is life... There's no more classic example than that than than in this instance. Mm, that's right, and it's why the 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 witchetty grub is a really important symbol for them. Which is in the artwork, as you mentioned, we've used art a fair bit in the film to show those song lines, the, the continual connection, to have a different layer of voice about how people see their country and their connection to it, but. The, the maku, as they call the, the witchetty grub, is only on that red soil. So it's an important symbol of, of going back to their country because they can't, they can't eat it when it's there on, it, they're on, uh, on the grey earth country because they, they don't live there. And even when we were taking some of the women from um, Yalata up to Aldea for the day um, to do some shooting up there, um, you know, one of the aunties, as soon as she got out of the car, went to, to find the maku because it's such an important symbol of their return to country. So there are quite significant ways that their life is different, their lifestyle is different, their connection to country is different, their diet is different, how they understand where they are and, and, and what's, you know, what their responsibilities are. Um, so... It's it's not surprising that the the moment that that uh, land was returned, as you mentioned, was a moment of of such joy that you actually see people weeping with happiness for it. Well, you can have a look for yourself. Uh, we've covered a fair few bases here, Larissa, so that's been good. Thank you for your time, um, Marilinga Jarajar. Screens uh, Sunday, twenty fourth of May. 
on uh, ABC, but it will be available on iView after that as well if you don't get a chance to um, see it live. But um, I, like I said, I watched it this afternoon and I um, thoroughly recommend it. You see a lot of things within the documentary that are spoken and unspoken. And um, uh, Larissa and I can talk about it all day long, but um, the documentary does more than um, just uh, talk about it. It actually demonstrates what these people have been through. Larissa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, yesterday, the um, Andrews government announced a $500 million spend on public housing as part of the economic stimulus package that is trying to revive the economy from this pandemic malaise. The announcement is welcome, but is it enough? Aboriginal women fleeing domestic violence situations continue to have nowhere to go as a result of the lack of social housing. This is resulting in children being removed from their mothers because there are simply no safe options to house these children with their mums. Earlier today, I had a yarn with the CEO of Elizabeth Morgan House Aboriginal Women's Services Incorporated, Kellyanne Andy. Kellyanne and her small team are on the front line when it comes to providing secure refuge accommodation and specialist family violence services to and for Aboriginal women and their children. Their support also extends to Aboriginal children um, as well as partners and ex-partners of uh, Aboriginal people. Kellyanne, welcome to the mission. Thank you. Uh, as I've been doing with uh, every guest uh, during this uh, pandemic, I'm uh, going to ask you, uh, how are you and your family and friends coping with uh, the current COVID crisis? I think for us it's been a little bit difficult because we're, me and my partner are still currently at work every single day. Right. Um, so we're not feeling like we're feeling a bit left out about how people are coping and making their gardens and all their house stuff that they're doing and we're stuck at work. Because, yeah, we're essential workers and need to support our communities communities the best we can. So it's kind of like the reverse from everyone else. You're kind of envious because people are tending to their gardens and people are envious of you because you're at work. Yep, definitely. <laughs> I think it's a, like, yeah, it'd be nice to have some downtime, but, yeah, the, the sector we work in, we can't have downtime. Yeah, this sort of stuff stops for uh, stops for nobody. Um, way back in uh, February, you, along with, when I say you, I mean Elizabeth Morgan House, um, put out a joint press release with the uh, Council to Homeless Persons, basically describing the situation where children are being removed from Aboriginal women, escaping family violence because of a shortage of social housing. Um, do you want to go in and explain exactly what that situation looks like on the ground? Yep, so we're, I'm not sure if you're aware of the stats are like Aboriginal children are removed 10 times more likely mm. due to families not having housing, which is a big factor with most of the cases that we work with, uh, women who are fighting to keep their children and to find secure housing, which there is lack of. Like we have a cohort of women who are single who aren't eligible for anything bigger than a one-bedroom. Then we've got the bigger side where we've got families that are needing five and six bedrooms that there is basically none of. Um, and then, yeah, children are removed because of people have no options but to move into family members' houses. The overcrowding then becomes another whole issue around 
the lack of space for everybody, the lack of education for children, the lack of just having somewhere safe. Yeah, I mean, our discussion comes at a, at a timely point. You know, your organisation and, and other organisations have been, you know, imploring government, pleading to government for, um, for a number of years now to increase the social housing stock in this state. Um, the government came out and announced yesterday $500 million for further um, public housing, building 168 units and um, upgrading 23,000 more. Is that enough? I think it would be enough to touch the ice, the tip of the iceberg, but still not enough considering how many people are actually on the waiting list for public housing and social housing. Yep. I'm not sure what the numbers were, but what are the units going to be? One and two bedrooms, which then eliminates much larger families. It's great that they're putting money into maintenance and upgrades of properties because it means that families will be able to finally have a safe home and not live in poverty and basically pulling down properties. Yeah, I think there's um, something something like a, um, a 50,000 person wait list for social housing at the moment in Victoria, um, which is just phenomenal when you think of you know how advanced our economy is supposed to be. Yeah, and that's just applications. That's not people. Like how many yeah, people right. per yeah. application are on them Good point. on yeah. that list? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a small picture of yep yeah, saying that that's what we've got on the waiting list, but actually in reality, that's applications, not families. Yeah, or number of children without safe, secure housing. Yeah, it's scary to think think of that when you think about it like that. You know, this, these could be families of five, six, four, two, who knows? But um, definitely, yeah, that's just the paperwork. Um, yeah. Uh, in terms of, I mean, we're getting reports now from from various agencies that there's been, an, you know, uh, a substantial increase in uh, domestic violence during, you know, lockdown. Um, yes. Are you getting reports of that as well through your service? Yep. So our intake numbers have increased in the last couple of weeks since this has all happened. We're struggling with families with having to homeschool without mm-hmm. the right equipment to, like, internet, laptops for children where everybody's doing the best they can. Not everybody who's homeschooling has their ability to homeschool, so we're concerned around the children that are not being able to get into schools where some families are thinking it's safer to keep them home instead of sending them. We're also trying to send out packages to families to say, here's some little stuff to help out along the way. Um, Our counselling program has numbers have gone through the roof, so we've had to close, which is such a sad situation because we've not closed our counselling program ever because the numbers are so high. So when, um, you, when you say when you say you've had to close it, why did you have to close because the numbers are so high? Yeah, now we've only got one counsellor attached to our service who right. can't meet our demand at the moment. Gee, that's, um, that's really disturbing, isn't it? Definitely, because, yeah, it's such a sad thing to do. Yeah. Um, is there any way that, um, you know, listeners can actually contribute to Elizabeth, Elizabeth Morgan House Aboriginal Women's Services? Is, is, do, you, do you take donations? Yeah, we definitely take donations, and that's there's a page on our website. And what's, which, what's the web address? The web address is Elizabeth Morgan House yep. Aboriginal Women's Services. So it's just www.emhaws.org.au. 
Okay, yeah. Because, um, you know, you've, your organisation has provided essential services to Aboriginal families and Aboriginal women in particular for, um, you know, so many years now. And it's just, um, it's just tragic to think that there are people seeking help but not being able to get it at the moment. Yeah, and there's, like, silly little things that people are needing help with, like everybody being home, the rubbish collection is through the roof at the moment on people's places, so we're trying to get skips. We're trying to talk to council about we need more than probably one picked up a week at this stage while everybody's at home. Mm. So just stuff that people don't generally think about is, like, grocery bills are gone through the roof for our clients, so we've had an increase of people needing our assistance to purchase food to have everybody home all day every day people are snacking a bit more kids are entertaining themselves with the food so yeah shop shopping bills are gone through the roof for parents you're listening to Triple uh, R 102.7 FM. This is The Mission. My name's Daniel. I'm speaking to Kellyanne Andy, who is the CEO of um, Elizabeth Morgan House Aboriginal Women's Services. Um, you're doing a great job, Kellyanne, by the way. <laughs> so, Thank you. It's just like trying to, yeah, it's <laughs> you're doing This very is the part well. of the job I hate. <laughs> yeah, no, you're doing it. You're doing it very well. Um, uh, what would you say, I mean, the, the, the issues that you're describing are, are things that just don't make, uh, you know, the, the pages of our, of our media either in hard copy or um, electronic copy. Um, what's one of the what's one of the mo- most significant issues that we just don't hear about that, that comes along this crisis in terms of the way it affects families? I think a lot of it's around the children. Like without safe and secure housing, they're constantly education is at risk of being limited. Yep. Like back when I first started, we had one little child in prep who went to nine different schools because of the lack of housing and the constant moving. And children shouldn't have to carry that burden. No. No, and, um, you know, I think there's, um, you know, a level of guilt that comes along with that too. You know, if, you know, the, 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 the child gets a sense, I would imagine, from, from, from the rest of the family as, as to the, the dramas associated with their education and, and that can then force a level of, you know, guilt upon the, f- the fuss they're causing. Yep. And then it's just like the parents n- never get over that guilt sometimes and the trauma that relates to just being in a shitty situation and then having to then parent on top of this as well. And some of our families haven't had parents so they don't know how to be parents. Yep. Because it's just the system has raised them, which is really unfair that it's still happening now. It's really, it's really tragic. You can't be what you can't see, of course. And um, you know, if, if all you can see is 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 the system, then um, you're not going to have much of a clue in terms of being able to to raise a family with all the things that um, you know, all the components that we know uh, we need to, to to develop a decent childhood for for a kid. Yeah, and it's about systems all working together to support the whole family, not just part of it. Like. Some of us will work with the women and children. Some of us are working with the, the perpetrators or the person who uses violence. Yeah. Um, so complex. Now, the the announcement yesterday was for 168 new public housing units. Um, 
but the, the council to homeless people um, in the, um, the the media statement that uh, you guys put out back in Feb is actually calling for um, 6,000 new social housing properties per year for a decade. So the $500 million, as you said, is just the tip of the iceberg and it's barely scratching the surface, surface in terms of addressing the crisis. Definitely. And it's just about, like, where are they going to place these properties as well? Is it going to be support services for especially for Aboriginal people they need to be still living within their communities and have access to their services and supports. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the risks is with this sort of initiative is that the, 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 the social housing units are just plonked in the middle of a paddock somewhere without, um, you know, proper infrastructure, you know, infrastructure, you know, how, um, you know access to public transport, you know, schooling, access to health services. Um, I can think of, you know, given the the, the whinging that we've had from uh, from golfers recently, there's a there's a few golf courses out in the <laughs> the the sand belt that um, you know I reckon would be very good for public housing. You know, for just to um, you know flatten those and put some public housing out there at the uh, at Bayside suburbs. I think that'd be really useful. <laughs> Definitely, oh. and places with yards like kids yes. in the future will not know what a yard looks like soon. Absolutely, it's I mean, it's going to be just like a cement city. Yeah, I mean, being in, being in lockdown and, and um, distance learning with with kids in you know in an apartment in a decent apartment would be difficult enough. But in some of the some of the really cramped units and, and overcrowded social housing settings we have, it must be an absolute nightmare. Definitely, because it's like they can't even go downstairs to the parking of ground because they're all taped up. So like yeah, right, they don't yeah. even get they get a balcony that overlooks somebody else's balcony or some another brick wall. Yeah, and you get... Yeah, kids need a bit of greenery and a bit of space to burn off some of their much-needed energy. <laughs> <laughs> you may, it must be, yeah, I've never really thought about it because I don't, I don't have children, but, um, you know, for, for, for some families, access to, to those parks and those playgrounds is, is where you go to burn off that energy and, and, and give the kids a bit of... Um, you know, greenery social and, and social interaction, too. and to, the, the, to actually see them taped off, you know, cordoned off, like you would have uh, a crime scene. You know, it's got to have a, it's got to have an impact on your psyche, doesn't it? Definitely, and, and to go for a walk with your children and not be able to go to the park is is a trauma in itself because then you got to deal with the child who wants to play in the playground. Yes. <laughs> and can't. Yes. Well, you're doing fantastic work, um, Kellyanne. Um, continue to do so. Um, I know you will. Um, if people, again, once again, if people want to contribute to Elizabeth Morgan House or find out a little bit more about your services, the website is again? www.emhaws.org.au. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We'll have you back again. You're a star performer. So, um, uh, I know you hate it, but uh, too yes. bad. You're, too, you're too good at it. You're too good at it. So, um, we'll just hope we covered everything. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.